there are two things that you don't talk about in polite company. It's religion and politics, especially at Thanksgiving dinner. If there's anything that could possibly have broken that rule more wide open, it's social media. Let's have all the conversations about religion and politics through keyboards, because that makes sense. And if there's another truism, at least in our part of the Protestant church, maybe it's not that you shouldn't talk about it, but it makes us really uncomfortable if you're going to have a sermon and talk about money. Now, I've been asked before by people, either curious or not, why I don't, why I've, I think in six and a half years, I've never had an entire sermon that could easily have tied into the idea of kingdom investment. Like, well, you just, why? I said, it's that been there in the text. Like, we don't try and, like, take a text as a springboard into what I really wanted to say, right? We preach the text. But if it comes up, I'll get to it. <laughs> it came up. Now, there's a couple reasons why talking about money in our little corner of the church makes us incredibly uncomfortable. Here's first one. Because you have bobble-headed snake oil salesmen with slicked back hair and 800 numbers on the television, and it's all they talk about. And they want you to send your faith seed, and they're going to sneeze on a handkerchief and send it back. I don't know. I don't know how that works. I've never, in, I've never done that. Um, but something about a handkerchief and money. I don't know. Um, and the need for airplanes, and I don't get it. But after driving down the tollway, maybe I do. Like, it's, it's probably fine. But here's the, so we, we, we feel like, especially for people that are visiting the church or not familiar with the church or weren't raised in the church, if you talk about money, it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. That's what they've been about all along. They just want to get my money. Yes, but not in the way the bobble-headed snake oil salesmen do it on TV. Here's the second reason why I think it makes us uncomfortable. The second reason I think it makes us uncomfortable is because we don't like being told what to do with our money. It's my money, right? And we don't like the big government in D.C. telling us what to do with our money. We don't particularly like the cats down in Austin telling us what to do with our money. Well, if we're being honest about it, we don't particularly like um, the township, Denton County or Dallas County or Tarrant County or whomever it is telling us what to do with our money. And if we're being really, really honest about it, maybe we've just felt guilty about what we've allowed ourselves to do with our money. Maybe we're in a spot where circumstances are dictating our life and we can't do anything different. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. In fact, it's so uncomfortable to me. Okay, so uh, 
I don't know if you knew this, but I, um, I like to send a, a draft of my notes that I get done on Thursday to a couple friends, to Jen, to others, just to look at it and go, hey, that makes sense, or are you a lie? Are you feeling okay? This makes, were you, are you, do you need to go to the hospital? I, this time, I was so worked up about it, I sent it to the session. I said, is everybody okay with this? Part of it is I want plausible deniability. That way, if you yell at me, I can be like, they said it was okay. <laughs> here's the last bit of, here's the last bit of preamble. Some of you are getting to know me, and some of you, unfortunately, know me really well. I don't think I've actually addressed church business in a sermon. I may have alluded to some things, but I've never addressed church business in a sermon. And I don't intend for this sermon to be a springboard to talk about church business. Like, there's going to be some applications that are going to come up, but it isn't the point. Jesus is the point. And that's why the church business shows up in the second point rather than the third point. So why all this setup? What was Paul doing? Paul's closing his letter to the church in Philippians. And in a sense, when you read the text, as we're going to do in just a minute, when you look at what he has done, effectively, it functions like a paid in full stamp on a receipt. Like a tax statement you would get at the end of the year for a generous contribution. He's saying, my need has been met, and it's been met abundantly. Thank you for that. What are the implications for us? That's what we're asking God to show us this morning. So stand if you would. Let's read our text together. Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to the end of the letter. Hear God's word. Paul's just finished saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know what to do with plenty and I know what to do with want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet... It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, who will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Father, you don't want to change us superficially. You want to change us all the way down to our hearts. Change us from the inside out so that we radiate the glory of Jesus and the personhood we were designed for in being made in your image. 
Open our eyes that we may see our ears for Christ's glory and his sake, we pray. Amen. Be seated if you would. What Paul saw in this kingdom enterprise that he was engaged in was that the fuel for mission, the fuel for the mission of God within the kingdom of God was zeal for the Lord. And how was that zeal expressed? Zeal for the Lord is expressed by God's people who have been made alive by God's spirit using their time, their talent, and their treasure sacrificially and generously for the glory of God. Now, I said before in my introduction that the text showed up. Here it was, providentially on May the 19th of 2019 in the life and times of Metrocrest Presbyterian Church, which in this year will also, in October, celebrate its 30th birthday as being a particular church laboring for the glory of God and the expanse of the kingdom of God here in We are going through, as a church, a life cycle. Everybody does it all the time. And we are going through a life cycle in the life of the church. Um, Work has begun to uh, transition some families that have been very uh, familiar and very uh, precious to the life of our church, and it's transitioning them away. And you saw me send an email out about that um, to that effect, and you heard David pray about it just a few moments ago in the intercessory prayer. We had originally had plans that we were searching for and praying for, for God to raise up um, someone that would come and uh, labor among us as an assistant pastor in a full-time capacity. But those plans have taken a back seat because we've had to explore new ideas because as we look in the coming years, we see what is likely a precipitous downturn in some, and the better part of wisdom and valor is to walk by faith, but also sense. You can't promise somebody the money's going to be there and just kind of hope it shows up. That's not fair to their family. And I like to sleep at night. So it's fitting, isn't it, to think about investment, to think about the kingdom, to dream about the the mission of God, to have an honest conversation about how we see the witness of Scripture speaking over and over again that comes um, to the dividend when God's people and God's servants align their hearts with God himself to see the flourishing of the kingdom come. The Philippian church was not a wealthy church. They were not um, flush with all the resources that they needed, not by a long shot. Listen to how Paul described both their situation but also their generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where the Philippians are. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 8, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you hear that? In the same letter in 2 Corinthians, Paul's trying to get the wealthy Corinthians to open the purse strings a little. And he says, by way of example, your brothers and sisters in Jesus in Macedonia have overflowed with abundance, even in the midst of their poverty. See, Paul's not talking here about people that just have extra to give and aren't quite sure where to put it. He's talking to people who don't have any to give, but for the glory of God and the kingdom of God, they're going to go without so that the kingdom continue to get, can continue to expand. It's almost like that theme that I've been unpacking again and again and again, that, the, that Paul's delight, Paul's joy would be at the kingdom's expense, even if it is what? At his expense. Now he's saying, look, this has taken root in the life of the church. Your brothers and sisters in in Philippi, in Macedonia, he says to the Corinthians, have given out of their poverty so that generosity would be seen by those suffering affliction. Paul knows their hearts in Philippians. He knows that they are a generous people, and he wants to close his letter to them in encouragement to spur them on to keep with their generosity and keep with their zeal for the kingdom and to thank them for the tangible ways their generosity has impacted him. So there are three things that we're going to see with this type of kingdom investment for a a place and a people and a purpose, right? The three things that we see in this text is that there's the investment of the mission worker, there's the investment of the mission outpost, and there's the investment of the master, okay? There's the investment of the mission worker, there's the investment of the mission outpost, and then there's the investment of the master, Okay? In each case, what I want to do is look at two things. I want to look at how they get invested, and I want to look at the return, the dividend that their investment pays back. Okay? Everybody with me? You good? Did you pack a lunch? I'm just kidding. Maybe. Not sure. Anyway, we'll try and move. Um, it'll be online if you uh, miss or if I start talking like the Micro Machines guy. Okay. In this text, the investment of the mission worker. In this text, who's the mission worker? Paul, right? Paul is the mission worker. He's the one who's been sent. But we know that in bringing this into a contemporary context, there's any number of people that can be um, radical vocational goers, right? There could be campus ministers like our friend Justin Smith, who we support laboring up at the University of North Texas with RUF. It could be a church planter like Matt Grimsley that we're supporting in Madison, Wisconsin. Or it could be um, coaches and evangelists like Sharon Abibi that we're supporting over in Ethiopia. It might be um, our friend who is uh, laboring right now in parts of the Middle East. It might be 
um, our friends, the Gillums, Tom and Vicki in Ireland. It might be those ministering to faculty like Paul Hartgrove with uh, Faculty Commons and Campus Crusade or Crew, right? And it might even be the uh, it might even be um, the likes of a humble pastor of an established church in the suburbs of Dallas on the crest of the Metroplex. Vocational goers, right? Here's the here's the question that we're thinking about: What is the investment of the vocational goer, the the vocational sent one, right? The Williamsons are now preparing their hearts for this very question. What is the investment of the goer who's being sent to a place who's going to labor lovingly for the kingdom among a people for the glory of God? What is the price that you pay? What's the investment cost for those whom Jesus calls to make their living by bringing the gospel of Christ to those most desperately in need of it. And what is the return that they get back on that investment? What's the thing that keeps them invested in coming back for more, right? It's not the Jets. It's not the Jets. We have to be able to laugh about this a little bit, right? It's it's a little funny, isn't it? Can't do ministry unless I'm in a Learjet. Paul brings the investment of the mission worker to mind in verse 15. Look there with me. He talks about the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. What's this going to bring to mind? It's going to bring to mind that very first missionary encounter of the Philippian church as Paul and Silas with Luke and Timothy first brought the gospel to them. Maybe when Lydia, on the banks of the river, first heard about this Jesus. Or the jailer that Paul and his team encountered first heard about this Jesus. The beginnings of the gospel. Paul had had invested, right? Paul had invested in them the, uh, the word of God. The good news, the announcement. And do you remember what the, what the jailer in Acts 16 asked? He asked in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? And it was answered to him in Acts 16, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. You see, mission workers, all of us, wherever we are, invest God's precious, life-giving, sacred word into other people's lives. But that's not the only investment that vocational goers make in terms of the kingdom. Paul church saw firsthand the other investment that Paul had made. Paul suffered. It was the price that he paid. Paul's enterprise in the kingdom was not an isolated affair or a sole proprietorship. It was a joint effort. Everyone in the church was a co-laborer, a co-owner, a co-investor. There was no distinction in bringing the Philippians on board as partners in the gospel. Paul 
paid a price. He lost his comfort, his reputation, his freedom. And dear friends, may I just tell you this? That Paul's two forms of investment, of both the joy of telling good news and seeing good news take root and effect in a community, and the pain of suffering that Paul experienced and that others experienced in the enterprise of being a vocational goer, those two things are inexplicably and inextricably tied together. Now, I would love, I would love nothing more than to tell you that being a pastor is all that I make light of it to be, right? He works one day a week. Ha, ha, ha. You realize the reason that we can laugh about that? Because we know it's not true, right? It's funny because it's not true. And everyone's in on the joke. We know that I just don't hang my, my coat up at the end of the day and leave the widget factory behind. I wake up at two in the morning and I think about you. I pray. And I'm praying for you. I leave my house and I'm with you. Jen has learned well the tone of voice that I get after my phone rings and I answer it and I jump up and I start getting dressed and she knows to start praying and she knows it may be a while before she sees me again. And listen, guys, I'm not saying this to, some, to make some sort of pity pitch to you. This is what I signed up for. This is what Jesus called me to. Even on those days when I look at UPS and go, I could drive a UPS truck. <laughs> I don't look good in brown, but... Sorry, FedEx. It's FedEx truck. I... <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> These are the easy things, though. Because the reality of it is for my life, for the Ridenauer's life, like, there's no subtext here. There's no weird plea for, like, we are a well-loved, well-cared-for family here, okay? Because we have an amazing church filled with godly, gracious people. But do you know what? Life still happens, right? Life still gets hard, and it sometimes doesn't happen on a convenient schedule. You can't time your crisis to align with my family's schedule. That's okay. Because we're in this together. We would all love, I know, for the mission goers, the radical goers, the vocational goers to be able to ex experience all of the blessings and none of the hardships. And yet, in God's economy, it does not seem like that is how he built it. It's not part of what it is. It's simply not the way of the cross. It's not the way of the cross. We get to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Paul told the Philippian church as such. He told them in Philippians 3.10 that he desired to know nothing other than the power of the resurrection and to share in Christ's sufferings. For some, the price is simply too much. 
the struggles with mental illness, living paycheck to paycheck, the stress and strain on their marriage and parenting, the constant expectations, the never good enough, the never enough becomes, it becomes, they've had enough with it. Have enough. They walk away from ministry. Some tragically take their lives. They destroy their lives perhaps through affairs or substances or pornography or other addictions or they're just walking shells, showing up, punching in, checking out, and going home and living, as Thoreau said, lives of quiet desperation. So you can pray, right? There's a cost. There always is. There's always a cost. Events, investments mean that something is given, something is risked for a greater reward. So what's the reward then? Right, Steve? What's the, what's, we'll work on this. What's the reward, right? We're still trying to figure that part out. Because here's the thing. In our text, certainly there was one aspect that's a tangible and present reward for Paul, right? The church showed up. The church opened its purse strings. The church met his need. Paul was so well cared for that when he sends their receipt, not only is it paid in full, verse 18, but it's spilling over the top of his cup. But let's be really clear here that while having his physical needs met, and that's great because people get strangely accustomed to warm food and beds, The financial part is not what Paul treasured the most. No, not by a long shot. Look back at verse 17. What he says is that what gets him most excited is not what the gift does for him, but what the gift does for them. Now, I'm not saying this in any sort of hogwash, bobblehead, snake oil salesman, preacher type of way, that they invested something and they got a smelly handkerchief back. But ask me how I really feel about those guys. Anyway, um, listen to what it is. What matters for Paul is that his friends are thriving on grace. This is what fills his cup more than anything. Their care for him allows him to continue to declare God's grace to others because God has so radically captured and cast Paul's affections on the kingdom that he has been freed from much of the self-centeredness and absorption that consumes all of us. His brothers and his sisters in Jesus are his most treasured return on the investment that he has made. Do you know how giddy I get when I see God at work in your lives. Look, we know that God is faithful, right? But sometimes God is gracious enough to give us a front row seat and says, watch me. And then he goes and he does it. And you get to see right there in front of your eyes, I'm not that smart and I'm not that good and I'm not that talented and I'm not that educated. I'm just a poor boy from South Carolina. But God does amazing things. And sometimes I get to see it. I get to see what he's doing in your life. Sometimes you get to see what he's doing in my life. That's the greatest thing that's giving Paul the greatest amount of joy. What we need more than anything are pastors and missionaries, church planters and campus ministers, domestic and foreign heralds of the gospel that are really so well cared for by the people that have sent them 
that they are not going to worry at all about their bills, and maybe, just maybe, they can experience a few of the treats that God is gracious to give on this side of heaven to his people to enjoy in his kingdom. We need people that are well cared for, but who have also had their hearts so radically transformed by God's gospel, by God's gospel, and their hearts are so radically aligned with what the Spirit is doing in them, through them, and in the world, that their greatest joy is kingdom expanse, even if it is at their expense. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. I want you to look at the investment of the mission outpost. We are, we are a people together living in a mission outpost, okay? Now, this is a crucial paradigm for us to be in and to understand, right? We are not sitting back on, the, on our laurels of living in a place that is one for Jesus and has become a little slice of heaven here on earth. We are a mission people living together and laboring together in a mission outpost on God's mission field. If you don't see that as the dominant narrative of your life, then dear friends, we need to chat because this is where God has us. This is our reality. And all of us together are integral parts of this endeavor. What's your investment? Look at what Paul says. The Philippians investment. But most, most obviously, there was a financial investment, right? Paul summarizes and documents their gifts, both in Thessalonica and in uh, Corinth, right? In Philippians 4, 15 through 16. And can we just be as blunt as Jesus is for a moment about money? Back in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first sermon series I preached when I first came here to Metrocrest. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, this is what Jesus says. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 20. One's the takeaway, right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart? Paul's gratitude with his friends is that though the finances are tight, they're still open to others. The gifts that they gave were part and parcel of sharing in Paul's troubles. It's what he says in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. What does that mean? Part of their giving joyfully was in sending Epaphroditus. Remember, Epaphroditus almost died, and everyone was really concerned about him. And they went without so that Paul could go without a little less than he had been. Do you see that? They went without so that Paul could go a little less without. So then what's the dividend? What's the payout? What's the payout for the mission church, the mission outpost? Well, see, this is the crazy thing about how God's economy works. The dividend, the return, the profit, it comes back before any work has ever been done. 
The reason that the church can so generously give to Paul is because God has first given and filled so generously in their hearts. They have been made partakers of grace. They have in Christ tasted the joys of new life, redemption and reconciliation in Jesus so that their hearts could be changed and conformed more and more to live, love, and look like Jesus. And this is what grace is, friends. Listen, some of us have got to really um, grapple with the difference between grace, with the difference between righteousness and mere forgiveness, because a lot of us walk around like we've just been forgiven. You want to know what I mean by that? Look at this. Grace is not earned. It's, it's, it's not something that you, you get because you earn it. It's, it's lavishly and abundantly given. So think about this, all right? Let's say, let's just say, you go into your bank, whatever bank it may be. Let's say you go into your bank and your mortgage is in default. Your credit cards are all maxed out. They're past their due. You have other debts unpaid. You have debt collectors calling your house saying scary things. And lawyers are lining up to begin to take you to court. You walk into your bank. Your bank account is overdrawn. There are fees. You owe your bank money. The clerk sighs, agrees just to cancel everything and clear your accounts. Dear friends, that's forgiveness. But when you get to your car, there are two things that are true. One, you're bankrupt. You still have nothing. You just don't have lawyers making scary phone calls to your house anymore. And here's the second thing. Your bank doesn't ever want to see your face again. Do you want to know the difference between forgiveness and righteousness? Forgiveness and righteousness? Here's what it looks like. If you only know forgiveness, this is how you relate to God, by the way. That your debts have been cleared, but they never want to talk to you again. But imagine, just imagine same scenario, same tragedy of going into the bank. But as you're walking out the door, the CEO of the bank runs and grabs you and says, there has been a tremendous mistake. He takes you up to his corner office and sets you behind his desk and says, he's so sorry. He's going to go ahead and sign the bank and all of its assets over to you. And that he has an artist with a canvas down the hallway waiting to catch your likeness and paint a portrait for the bank's lobby. That's righteousness. Do you see? Forgiveness, the bank never wants to see you again. Righteousness, the bank is yours. But some of us live as we've just been forgiven and that God's mad at us. We're not living as a righteous people. As I mentioned in the beginning, we're in a life cycle in the life of our church. And it just happens to be our time. We have members moving away. We have others that are getting ready to move. We know that there's going to be a dip in giving patterns. We know that if we want to grow, we need to continue to invest in the gospel seed here on our mission field and in our mission outpost. And we also know that we may have to be strategic about our uses of funds over the next few years as we weather this. So what does this mean? Well, in for starters, it means that we're not going to have a full-time assistant pastor. I've come to terms with this. 
And just so we're clear, again, I don't want you to be thinking that there's subtext or things I'm not saying, or if you only knew the real story. Like, I went to the session and said, guys, the money's not going to be there. We should change our course. I know what that meant. I know what that meant for me. I know what it means for you. You don't get as many breaks from me as you deserve, so sorry. We're prepared for the possibility of possibly running a deficit budget in fiscal 2019 or 2020. So what can you do? Well, again, the question is, where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Are we all, all of us, giving in such a way that we can go with a little less so that we can together fund the work that the kingdom is doing here in and through Metrocrest? And by the way, this isn't because David is wondering if he's going to get cared for. I work for Jesus, not for you. My Lord supplies all my need. My concern is, are we bought in to the vision of together being a mission people on a mission outpost in a mission field? And do we all sense the idea that we are all invested together in what God's doing here? Do you understand that God's doing work here? Do you understand that there are people that are coming to life in Jesus for the very first time here in our community because of the ministry of this church, because of what God is gracious to do? Do you understand that there are people that are showing up and having their hearts radically set free by the gospel of grace because of what God is choosing to do. That means that we are all invested together as a part of this missionary enterprise. There is no bystander. There is no bench warmer. We're all in it together. So the first question is, where is your treasure? Second question, I need you to pray. And not just like, you know, token prayers. I mean, labor in prayer. Labor for God to be made great among us. You can pray for me. You can pray for the session. You can pray for the deacons as we try and make good and wise decisions for the use of our funds, for the uses of our time, for the uses of our talent, for kingdom purposes. You can ask God to fill our hearts with joy because of what we have been privileged to see him doing in and through the people and the, and the, and the way that his gifts and grace have been worked out here in this community. And the third thing is you can invest, Right? Now's the time to get skin in the game. Now's the time to offer your gifts. Now's the time to offer your generous giving as a pattern of kingdom investment. And I don't mean that that's writing a check necessarily. That may be giving of your time. That may be showing up and saying, how can I help to invest my talent, my time, my gifts for the kingdom's purposes here in this place because we're all in this together? Now is the time for us to be united around the idea that this church, this mission, this work belongs to Jesus, and it's been entrusted to us. And that means that we're going to have to commit to prayer. We're going to have to commit to give. We're going to have to commit to serve. We're going to have to commit to long for and dream for the gospel to bear fruit in this community. And that's why this is the second point and not the third point. Because here's the good news. The good news and the hope for all of us is that the sermon doesn't end here and the sermon instead ends with the investment of the master. You ready? Boy, I got glassy-eyed looks there. We're getting there. You ready? Here we go. 
Here's the, the third thing I want you to see is the investment of the master. The infinite reserve from which God himself makes his investment is stated for us by Paul in verse 19. Look at what it says. And my God will supply every need of yours according to what? According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's abundance, God's riches, God's wealth is so incomprehensible that we insult ourselves by trying to describe it. Paul's point is that God, the one who has everything, invests in us through Christ Jesus. The Son of God is the dearest and most valuable treasure of God and represents the most costly investment of the Father through the Son in the people who were once what? Who were once enemies and are now friends. Because of our union with Christ, the Father opens his riches to us. This is phenomenal to think about. The letter that Paul writes closes uh, to the poor Philippians with an assurance of their riches that they have through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his grace be with you and your spirit. Did you see what else he did in the letter though? In the closing, he said, the whole saints, all of them around me greet you and give you greetings, especially those of Caesar's household, right? Those who are holding him imprisoned have had their hearts set free. The work that they're doing, their partnership in the kingdom, is showing up even to the most unlikely of places. So what's the dividend? What's the thing that God gets in return? How do we pay God back? Well, we don't, right? It's not a matter of paying back. It's a matter of bringing profit. It's a matter of the, uh, the overflow, the dividend of the investment. What is the dividend that God gets back from this? Verse 20, look at the doxology that Paul puts in. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. In heaven's economy, in the perfection of the Trinity, in the dance of the Godhead, there was one thing that could not have had, that, that, that God could not have had in any other way. In order to have that one thing, the son had to become a servant, the servant had to be sinless, the sinless servant had to be slain in order to conquer grave and sin by resurrection to make saints those for whom the son died. You got that? The only way that this attribute of God could be displayed, God's bestowing of righteousness, God's bestowing of grace, this amazing grace was for God to be the rescuer and redeemer of a ruined people. Do you see this? The angels look at us and marvel. The angels look at us and marvel because we have something that they have never experienced. Do you see that? that the glory of God being manifest in such a way that those who were once enemies and strangers and, 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 and apart from God have been drawn near because of what Jesus has done. The return that God receives is that he will be glorified not only for redeeming a rebellious people, but also God will receive glory by those same rescued people. God receives glory for the rescue, and God receives glory from the rescued. Do you see it? 
this, this is a pan-national, gigantic, global gospel. God's glory, grace, and grandeur will be seen and savored by all people. Friends, this is the question that Paul is putting in front of the Philippian church. What is going to be the fuel and the source of your joy? This is the question for us as we are in a life cycle for the church. What is the next 30 years for Metrocrest look like? Are we going to be an artifact to, once we, to what we once hoped for, once dreamed for, once prayed for, and slowly die? Or are we going to invest in the kingdom in such a way that in 30 years, when none of us are here, by the way, maybe a few of us might be, that we see the mission of God still going for the glory of God by the gathered people of God who have been placed in this time, in this space, in this place, for the expanse and the glory and the renown of the king. Do you long for the joy of the Lord to be the joy of your neighbors and your co-workers and your kids, the joy of your spouse, the joy of your fellow congregants? This is not a privatized, individualized, compartmentalized gospel. This is all of us, all in, all committed, all together, praying together, longing together, dreaming together, investing together for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation, both in Carrollton and North Texas and around the globe. So how do you respond to a sermon like this? So brazenly talking about money and responsibility and partnership and privilege. Is your reaction hoping that someone nearby is going to step up and do the right thing? Boy, I hope the person he was preaching to heard that sermon. <laughs> it was a powerful one. He yelled a lot. He's a little sweaty. Who do you think needed to hear the sermon? Who do you think needs to respond as a family, as a people, to the word of God? It's us. It's got to be all of us. The riches of heaven are given to us, and we're able to be a generous and sacrificial people because of what's been done for us. We love because we were first loved. We give because we were first given to. We invest because this world is not our home. It points us to our true home. I need you to join in partnership with me, but it's not about me. I'm, it'll be okay. This isn't about my needs. This is about what God's doing. We need to pray together. And trust God for big and mighty things. He's faithful and he'll do it. I want you to see what I've been experiencing and seeing in God's graciousness. God's being enough, even in the moment of being gracious and good. Amen?